You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with your hosts, Andy Grant and Apio Hunter. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having. But you don't need to be a man to join us. The Real Men Feel Show is produced live each Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern for your growth and enjoyment. Listen to us on podcast platforms including iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also watch the show on YouTube by visiting realmenfeel.org slash YouTube. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org slash iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and on Facebook, facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Show your support for Real Men Feel by shopping at realmenfeel.org slash swag, by visiting digitaltipjar.com slash realmenfeel, or even text us a tip. You can show some love for Real Men Feel by texting Real Men Feel, that's all one word, to 504-226-5306. You'll receive a link back to complete your tip and choose the amount. This is a weekly program and your reviews, comments, feedback, and participation are welcome during the live show and anytime in our Facebook group, on Twitter, or at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's dive into this week's show. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. We're very excited to join you once again. Uh, unfortunately, once again, uh, my co-host Alpio cannot join us for this week's show. But um, be that as it may, Real Men Feel is brought to you once again by The Good Men Project. Visit goodmenproject.com for an ongoing conversation about what it means to be a man in the 21st century. And that topic is very much in alignment with our guest today. Uh, our guest is author Jed Diamond. Jed has been a licensed psychotherapist for over 40 years and is the author of 12, count them, 12 books, including Male Menopause the, and the Irritable Male Syndrome. His newest book tackles what Jed believes is one problem that surpasses all others in its impact on men, women, and society. That book is My Distant Dad, Healing the Family Farther Wound. And that farther wound is really what we're going to focus on uh, in today's show. So welcome, Jed. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you. It's my pleasure. And it, it, it's funny, um, we've been doing the show for two and a half years now. Mm-hmm. And I think it was in the first you know, few months or at least the first year of Real Men Field that I first reached out to you. Yeah. I'd seen your writings on The Good Men Project and all over Facebook. And we even had a conversation last year, but it just it, it never really happened. You, you were busy, you were traveling and all sorts of different adventures. So I really want to give a shout out to your publisher, Connection Victory Publishing, for making this connection finally happen today. Well, it's great. Uh, I'm pleased to be here. Uh, I'm excited to uh, have this new book published with Connection Victory and to share with your audience uh, some of these issues that I've been working with for so many years. Uh, in the whole field of helping men and the families that love them. Cool. So that really leads to my my first question. Besides being a man, what pushed you into doing so much with men's work and focusing on men's issues? Well, there's probably two stories, quick stories, that that really uh, have fed my passion. Uh, the, The one that I was 
very conscious of was when my son Jamal was born, uh, November 21st, 1969. And as I was coaching my wife through the Lamaze childbirth, getting ready for, you know, the birth of our child, didn't know uh, that it was going to be a son till later. Uh, I, I knew because of the doctors of the time said that at the Kaiser Hospital where we were that uh, when it was time for the delivery that I would have to go and wait in the waiting room because they didn't feel that fathers ought to be in the delivery room. You never knew what would happen. And I kind of understood that. I, I pass out sometimes when I see blood or I see somebody in pain. So I, I was prepared. So the time came, we'd been through, you know, 20 some odd hours of uh, the preparation. And they said, all right, uh, it's time for your wife to go in and you to go to the waiting rooms. So kissed my wife goodbye, went to the waiting room. But as I was going through the waiting room doors, I couldn't go through the doors. Uh, I felt that something, someone was pulling me back. And I realized that there was this voice in, in, my, in my head that was the voice of my unborn child saying, I don't want a waiting room father. Your place is here with us. And I, I just knew that I had, I turned around, walked back the other direction, went through the waiting room doors, and my son Jamal was born shortly after. As they handed him to me, I, I can still vividly picture holding him and making a vow to him that I would be a different kind of father than my father was able to be for me, and that I would do everything I could to change the world in a way that engaged fathers with their families from birth until the end. And that's really what I've been doing ever since. That was, you know, that many years ago. Uh, it's hard to believe my, my I'm this age and my son is that age. And, uh, you know, now he's, he has a son and, you know, the cycles continue. Mm. So that was really the first story that really was the impetus that, that kind of got me started. And then the father I was alluding to, which I, I talk obviously a lot about in the new book, was a father who I lost when I was five years old. And he had what was called at the time a nervous breakdown because he was unable to find work doing the work that he loved. He was a writer and an actor and a playwright. And in the Hollywood of the 1940s, he was blacklisted because he had left-leaning uh, sensibilities and believed in justice for all and minority rights and a lot of things we take for granted that at the time were seen as radical and uh, he was unable to work he was one of the blacklisted uh, you know hollywood uh, writers and he was unable to support his family and at that time that was such a shameful thing for him and he he took it so personally that eventually he became increasingly depressed and eventually took an overdose of sleeping pills. Luckily, he didn't die, but he was hospitalized and committed to Camarillo State Hospital, which is north of Los Angeles. And again, I was five years old at the time. My uncle visited him every Sunday and wanted me to go with him. 
and I don't know why, and this is part of the story, my mother would not visit. She told me that I was to be her brave little man and in a sense to go in her place. And so I realized for years it was, you know, looking back, very traumatic. I spent a year every Sunday visiting my father who became increasingly withdrawn and increasingly sick and mentally deranged, not because of what got him into the hospital, but because of the electroshock treatments and the psychiatric drugs that he was given. So he reached a point where he turned to my uncle. He said, uh, hey, Harry, who's, who's that kid with you? And I was devastated. You know, he'd reached a point where he didn't even know who I was. And so really looking back, I realized that I actually have been doing this work, you know, somehow being a bridge between the women and men and reaching out to help men since I was five years old. Mm. So, you know, this is kind of the two stories that kind of intertwine. I could give you, you know, the, the, the more psychological, the more professional resume. But the truth is, these are the two real stories that set me on this path to doing this work that I've been doing all these years. Uh, um, frankly, that, that, that's stunning. Your experience as a five-year-old um, to have that, all that put upon you. So, so let, let's, let's jump in into it. So, so is it, what, what is the father wound? How would you define it? Well, again, uh, I define as I do a lot of the work that I do more experientially than, you know, a textbook or uh, a definition that you'd read in the dictionary. Uh, so for me, it, it, it started with a, a feeling of loss. Somehow my father was gone. That was the first feeling I had. The second feeling I had was somewhere behind that was some sense of guilt or shame that somehow I was to blame in some way for that. And again, my, even as a five-year-old, my reasoning was, well, my father, the, 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 the story that I heard from my mother was that he broke down because of the pressures of having to support a family. Well, it seemed that I was the family. In other words, before I was born, he seemed to be, at least in my five-year-old mind, getting along okay. But when I came along and the pressures of taking care of a child and being the breadwinner, and he wrote in his journals, which I you know, recount in the book in some detail, the, 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 just the, the ripping his, his heart and soul out, trying to, to make a living, trying to, you know, bring home the bread for his family and not being able to do that. So part of the wound is what happens when we grow up, as many of us do, in a family where a father is distant, absent, rejecting, or in some way dysfunctional. And what I experienced was then, I remembered the events of my father going into the hospital and the pain of that childhood experience, 
But then there was kind of like a black hole where you, you know, you grow up, you push those things aside, you know, because of the, you know, the dictates of the man box in many ways. We, we say we, we don't feel pain. We must be strong. We must be, you know, pushed through adversity. And so I just kind of ignored and pushed aside the effects of the pain. And then I grew up and I got married and, you know, had a family. And the fact that I kept having problems with relationships. Uh, my first wife and I, you know, our, our marriage ended after 10 years. I got married again, and that relationship was very destructive. I was extremely angry, and I never knew why. I was always, you know, growing up as a teenager in fights. As an adult man in the family, I was always enraged, and I never knew why. So finally, what I've come to see is the father wound is not only what happened when we were young and how we came to see ourselves, the beliefs about ourselves, there's something defective about me, that there's some, you know, rage that we carry that somebody is to blame for this. But it's also our health problems that often have roots back into these childhood experiences, our emotional problems that often have roots back into these childhood experiences, and the longing to have the validation and that sense of okayness and that I'm an okay person, I'm an okay man, that in some ways we can only get from our fathers or hopefully father substitutes that we might, you know, connect with through the years. So that's probably a long way around saying, you know, what the father wound is, but it, it is a long way around. It's not a simple concept when you experience it in your life, but when you can put the pieces together, it opens up the possibility of not only healing our present physical, emotional, and relationship wounds, but also healing the past and being able to really come to peace with some of these early experiences that so many of us have had, but we deny, we suppress, we bury, and they come out in all these indirect ways that often cause our, our, ourselves to be in pain and often our, our wives, our partners, our children, our people we work with, where we take out these wounded parts of ourselves on those that we care about the most, in some ways reprocessing a lot of the wounds in our families that we never understood. So that was really why the impetus for the book, how can I make sense of this in my own life? How can I share the healing that I learned so that other people, hopefully, who have had experiences with fathers that were distant or absent or rejecting or dysfunctional in some ways can go through their own healing process? Cool. So that, that really helps. So the, the, far, the family father wound is not only something that happened to Jed. It's not something that only happens if your father goes into a mental hospital and you're a child. Right. It can be physically absent. It can be emotionally absent. Um, so given, given that it can be so many things, it, 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 are there really people that grow up without a father wound? Well, this is what's interesting. I, you know, we, we think of, I was just uh, reading some, uh, some research today uh, that was indicating the, the, the numbers of people who have grown up with some problems with anger and depression. Um, 
And the other thing that I, I mentioned at this point is, although the story that I tell is a, a male story, and it's, you know, I'm a man and my father's a man, my son, but this also affects women as well. In the fact that I lost a father at that age, I came to understand that the, my mother lost the man in her life. And that totally affected how her life was and her, you know, emotions and her relationship issues. And then we find, obviously, that many women also grow up with fathers, you know, who are distant or absent in some ways. So that the, the healing, you know, that's possible starts with being able to accept that this is really common and that some of the emotional manifestations include this increasing level of depression and aggression and anger that we see in a sense throughout our culture that people you know don't understand you know they look for a cause in 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 this thing or that or gun violence or you know the the kind of craziness that's going on in, in the streets and shootings and you know domestic violence but we rarely tie it to I think some of the core, which really is some of the wounds that go on in our early family relationships, and particularly the wounds that happen, as you point out, when a father may be gone due to a divorce, uh, due to an early death, maybe just a father that was overworked and really didn't have time to be emotionally involved with his children or was angry because often he grew up in a in a family where his father wasn't present. So these are intergenerational woundings that we have become so inured to because in a way they're so common, we just take for granted, well, that's just the way it is. And everybody has some of that. Yeah. And many do, but we can do better and we can start healing the wound so we don't pass on the same wounding to the next generation, to our children and grandchildren. So, so it sounds like the, the way the wound is passed on is because men, well, probably men are not taught how to be men, so they just model what was done in their experience growing up until exactly. some generation feels enough pain that they seek help with it. Exactly. And so, then what you, you see, and we see this in family after family, is as the men withdraw physically or emotionally. And again, you can be fathers who are physically absent from the home, or they could be fathers that were still physically present, but emotionally absent. Then what happens is the mothers draw the children closer to her. You know, naturally, there's a feeling of, well, if dad's not present, I have to be dad and mom, or I have to be the one that is the emotional connection with the children. And then the dads feel even more disconnected and the moms try even harder to be the, you know, the, the, the full package for the children. And again, this cycle continues until somebody, hopefully many of us now that are talking about these issues and beginning to break the cycle, to beginning to heal the wounds so that fathers can be fathers and involved with their families, mothers can be mothers. And children can grow up in homes where, you know, the mothers and the fathers and the parents are, are there for them in ways that allow them to grow up to be full, safe, productive, caring, engaged human beings. Great. So I, I wanted to ask, um, 
you know, what is it that children do need from a father? What, what, what's, you know, the op, if, uh, what does a present father bring emotionally, physically? Like, like what is, is it just engagement? Is it more? Well, again, it's, uh, the, when you think about it, I, there, the simple answer, I don't think anybody said it better than the poet Robert Bly. I used to do workshops with Robert, and he talked about that when young men, he was talking about men, but this would be true for women as well, girls as well, when a young person is in the presence of an older man, they need to be in the physical presence, not an online or a, you know, this is nice, we've got, it's nice to be online, but we need to be physically present to each other. And what Robert Bly said is that the, the young person in the presence of an older man is able to hear the sound that male cells sing. Hmm. I thought, that is so wonderful, that idea that male cells have a vibration, yeah. have a sound that they make, and that it's important for every child to hear that sound, to experience that male energy in the same way that they need to experience the female sound, the heartbeat of the woman in the womb, but they equally need to hear the sound that male cells sing. So that's, that's a simple thing. Then beyond that, you know, they need to be held physically and touched and kissed. I'll give you another example with my son, Jamal, when he was born, yeah, November 21st, 1969. From the time he was a little kid, I took off from work because I wanted to be there. I physically held him. I kissed him. I hugged him. And throughout his life, even into adolescence, we kissed on the lips when we would, you know, encounter each other. When I'd pick him up from school, first thing I'd do is I'd hug him and, and give him a kiss. And he was so comfortable with that because children need and know that they need that kind of fatherly connection that he was never embarrassed by it. If kids kidded him, he said, what's the matter with you? This is what we do. And now he's, you know, getting to be almost a 50-year-old man. And we still kiss on the lips whenever we see each other. And I kiss my grandson. And so it's physical connection. It's touch. It's hugging, it's kissing, you know, it's emotional engagement. It's being able to bring our full complement of who we are, our anger, our pain, our sadness, our hurt, our inquisitiveness, our hungers, all of these to the deep engagement that we need and have with our families, through, again, through all parts of their lives. Awesome, awesome. And in, and in your experience, even after you know, kind of losing your father at the age of five, you, your, your mom had an on-again, off-again relationship. So I w I'm not sure to quite, quite call him a stepfather to you, but there, there was a kind of a new father figure, but then yeah. he was coming and going. So was that just, that just add on more layers of, of wounding for you? Yeah, it did. I, I had a stepfather, uh, as many do. And sometimes a stepfather then can be a consistent presence in your life. But in my case, he was a father who came and went. He'd be there for, you know, a month or more, and then he'd he'd leave. He'd he'd go off and travel, and uh, he'd be somewhere else. And so, you know, I grew up feeling that you really couldn't count on men. You know, it was part of you know the how I 
became, you know, the lone wolf. I think part of the, that male idea that somehow we've got to be the macho, you know, lone ranger kind of thing. Uh, I can't prove it, but I would guess that a lot of the people that wrote those plays, those stories of lone ranger type or the Marlboro man or the lonesome cowboy, you know, were those that grew up with absent fathers. And so that seemed normal. That seemed like that's the way men are, rather than this is an aberration that in many ways become built into our society, where even now we know that there's, there's parental leave that's often given, but mothers take it when they have a, a child. Even the leave that's available to fathers often is not taken because the feeling is if I took that, I would lose my job or I'd fall behind or I'm not going to be as successful. And so we perpetuate these cycles that dads are not as engaged with their children as mothers are and that that's just a normal part of life and the way it is. And I want to tell myself, you and everybody that that isn't the way it is. It's not the way it should be and that we can do something to change it. So that really kind of is a self-fulfilling prophecy that the, the generations of father wound supports a society to focus more on the mother because the mother is still there and, and doing her best to save the day, kind of. Well, exactly. And it puts undue pressure on mothers, you know, who, you know, try to do everything. You know, they become breadwinners because often we need two people making money or sometimes the, the dad, as in my case, was not making, uh, you know, a living. And, and it also marginalizes the dads who feel, number one, their only value, you know, to the family is as the breadwinner. For instance, it was very clear to me in retrospect, you know, when I grew up, that my dad would have been a much better stay-at-home parent. He just liked the job. He liked being involved with kids in a way that my mother never was. She was more of a natural businesswoman. She loved being out in the work. But because of the times, their natural inclinations couldn't be honored. He had to be the breadwinner no matter what, even if it killed him. And there's a lot of men that still feel that way. And women who feel that, you know, they often can't feel comfortable being the, the sole breadwinner or being the main breadwinner. And Again, these are changing. Hopefully, you know, younger people are starting to find that balance, but it will never replace the need that we have to have parents deeply involved with their children from the moment that they're born until certainly until they're, you know, up and out and into the world. And we're not doing nearly enough of that. And so we're, we're raising generation after generation of children who are deeply wounded. You know, you say, is the father wound, you know, pervasive? It is. And mother wounding is also. I don't think many of us get enough mothering. By comparison, we may get more mothering than fathering for many of us, but it's not nearly enough of what we need to have a balanced mothering and fathering that needs to be raised at all levels. Mm. And that's a great point. So we're not saying that um, the only wounding a child gets is from the father being absent. E either right. parent can be absent, distant, right. and, and really have lifelong effects on, on a child, on a human. Exactly. And often when the father's absent, 
you know, in my case and in many cases, uh, it puts the mother into a position where she has to assume more of the breadwinning role and is not as available. So I spent a lot of time in childcare. I spent a lot of time, you know, when my mother couldn't afford childcare, the childcare was she would drop me off at a restaurant that, you know, we would have after school and I would hang out in this restaurant, you know, from two or three in the afternoon until she picked me up at six o'clock, you know, and the waitress would kind of keep an eye on me and I'd eat some food. And uh, so I think there's thousands of ways in which we've made adjustments and we've done the best we could, but people need guidance. I think part of what I, I, I really wanted to do with, you know, the, the book was to one, share my own experiences and to be able to give people the hope that no matter what kind of wounding you had, there is a, a whole healing process that can happen. And secondly, which uh, you know, I, I want to, again, tell our listeners about is that after I finished writing the memoir, which is the story of my father and myself and the, the, the breakdown, the rejection, you know, and eventually the healing and coming together that was possible. I decided I wanted to have an accompanying workbook that would go with it. I call it a playbook because my wife said, hey, this is really doesn't have to be work. This can be fun. <laughs> so my wife, Carlin, said, yeah, call it a playbook. And so, uh, you know, we have a playbook that's called Healing uh, the Family Father Wound that takes, in retrospect, the 38 questions that got answered in my journey. I didn't plan it that way. That's just after I wrote the book, I went back and said, geez, there are actually 38 questions that I was able to come to understand that I could then turn in a workbook, a playbook for people who really want to do the internal work that took me 70 years to do. And I said, it, with some guidance, it doesn't have to take this long. You know, if you understand it and you have some guidance, the story will tell you kind of how I did it. And it's a very engaging story. And everybody that I know have read it, we've gotten some wonderful reviews have just said it totally touched their lives. It made them, you know, just light up in ways that they hadn't. It, uh, Lisa said uh, it brought her to tears numerous times. Uh, but it also then gives a guide that ties into the playbook that you can then now have specific things that I, I give people to do, exercises to do. I give them resources that help me along the way that can help them. And I give them, you know, people to connect with, organizations uh, like the Good Men Project that people can connect with. So it becomes then this, this package of a story and a playbook that really together can help people take this whole journey. It's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful thing to give yourself and hopefully people you know and love. Yeah, I get it. And in, in, in my, when I first started reading My Distant Dad, I was expecting a self-help book. Mm -hmm. And so the, the memoir elements, and it's not just elements, it's just, I mean, the, the majority yeah. is your memoir, but it's not right. just your memoir, it's your dad's as well. That's right. And yeah, and yeah I, I resonated so often and so deeply. And, uh, you know, we're different generations, but it 
just so much was in sync. Um, It really took my breath away multiple times of how much um, in common there was. Um, And and one thing, you know, but even before this book, you had written about President Trump and recognizing father wound in his history. And and it led you to predict his election kind of based on his wounding. And could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's, uh, it was interesting. I had, uh, you know, this is before I had started writing the book, I was just looking because I'm a therapist, I'm a psychotherapist that works a lot with, uh, with people who, you know, had physical, emotional, mental problems, who've had wounding in their lives. And when uh, I was starting to hear about this guy, Donald Trump, even though at the time uh, people said, oh, you know, he, he, you know, he's not even going to be taken seriously by the Republicans. He's just, you know, and yet I started looking at his history and I read some things that he had written about his, you know, his rise to business uh, success. And wh- what I saw in that, he, he, he wrote about, you know, I, I'm really great and, you know, this is how I make a lot of money. I read it as a tale of a, a person who had been wounded as a child. He talked about his rage and his anger. He talked about the almost compulsive need to win at any cost. He talked about his his own distant dad who, you know, really was so busy with work that he really didn't have time to be emotionally engaged with them. And what became evident to me and uh, it just struck me was this was a wounded man and that in my clinical work, I was seeing a lot of wounded men out in the world. And I made a prediction, and you know, I actually wrote an article for the Good Men Project so people could read it six months before the, the election, presidential election, that I, I said, you know, I'm seeing this woundedness in this candidate. By then, he was a candidate again, six months before the election. If you go back that far, Nobody thought he was a serious candidate, and I predicted not only would he emerge as a serious candidate, but that he would get elected as president, not because of you know the the, the policies or his ideas, but because he was touching something deep in the psyche of our country, a woundedness that was there, and a turning towards then an abusive father, you know, who says. I will take care of it. I know how to handle things. You know, I, can, I will solve all your problems. Follow me. And I got to say, I mean, this is, this is very current as we're talking, is that the policies that now are happening with separating parents from their children at the borders that's part of, you know, this president's administration is so predictable because it's an expression of the woundedness that happens with Donald Trump. Hmm. You know, he was a wounded child with a distant dad. And often these unhealed wounds, if they're not dealt with and then get lived out through people in power, become then the ways in which the woundedness is reacted out in the world, reenacted. So that now you are putting into policy the same kind of dysfunction and disconnection 
and separating out of children that's wounding the children and wounding their parents in the guise of public policy when somebody who's psychologically trained as I am to deal with trauma is this is a reenactment of the trauma. You see it in the families of trauma people if they're not healed and now you see it in public policy and we need to call it out. We need to say, you know, this needs to be stopped in the same way you would stop, uh, you know, somebody who is abusing a child. You would stop somebody who is, you know, leaving children without care. And we need to change public policy and, and public awareness that does not make the connection between the father woundedness that so many people have grown up with in our country and the kind of political woundedness that we're seeing, you know, in our, the body politic. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's powerful and insightful. And, you know, I guess uh, at first I hope that, well, if someone with a father wound rose to power and it resonated with people, oh, it would have to be a healing, but no, it, it's just more people getting together and reacting from this wounded place and kind of striking out as opposed to, uh, as opposed to this bringing comfort by, by having this wound show up more? Well, it can go either way. We either perpetuate the woundedness if we stay in denial, you know, or we wake up. And I still, you know, am, am hopeful that uh, if not Donald Trump himself, but other people who, you know, can begin to see the connection between the woundedness in children and the kind of adult woundedness that we have, and I know, you know, since, uh, you know, my book's just come out on, on Father's Day, the, uh, uh, my distant dad was, was launched, the ebook is available, and then the, uh, the rest of the, the offerings from Connection Victory, the, uh, the hardcover, the paperback cover, and, then, and an audio book are going to be coming out in September. You know, my real hope is that this will, you know, start a movement that says, you know, these issues are not only personally relevant to millions of people, you know, they're relevant to, you know, the times in which we live and the healing that needs to happen and can really start a grassroots revolution for healing literally the millions of people, you know, ha who have been wounded and changing, you know, the, the mindset, the stories that we're telling in our culture to, from one of, Neg uh, abuse, neglect, and abandonment to ones of, you know, healing and reconciliation and reconnection. Is, is there anything in the one thing that stands out to you as being the most beneficial in, in your healing? Well, I think the, probably the, the, the series of things, I would, I would say a number of things. One was the recognition that the symptoms that I was experiencing, which often, you know, were anger, depression, you know, my own sense of there's something wrong, that I always was blaming on other people. For a long time, I blamed it on, you know, my first wife. Then I blamed it on, you know, the, the guys at work that I didn't relate to. I blamed it on the people that I lost my job. I blamed it on the culture. I blamed it on the political system. So there's these ways in which our woundedness and our pain and suffering, which we see very prevalent in the society, we, we want to find a reason for it. And we often look for a scapegoat. 
who can we blame it on? And everybody's got, you know, the, the left raises the right, the right blames, the, you know, I mean, there's scapegoating that goes on all over. So the first healing is saying, you know what? It's me. Somehow I have to deal with the causes of my own pain, number one. Secondly, I had to get support from other people. I had to recognize that, you know, if I didn't have a father figure in my life, I could get support in other places. So the first place I looked for was in getting a men's group started. And I was able to be part of a, a men's group experience. It's now, my men's group has been meeting now regularly for 40 years. Wow. 40 years we've been meeting. And my wife, Carlin, uh, attributes the fact that she and I have been married for 39 wonderful years with some difficulties. I won't say they've been perfect, but they've been wonderful and we've worked through our difficulties. But she attributes a lot of the success in our 39-year marriage to the fact that I've been in a men's group for 40 years. So reaching out to, you know, men in dialogue and being able to, you know, connect with men was probably the second, you know, healing, you know, experience and tool that, that I had. Um, and then the third really was a, a place where I could, in a safe way, deal with my emotional woundedness. And so that was therapy. I, I was in therapy and, and saw a therapist for a time. I was in, in our men's group. We did a lot of anger support. Um, uh, I was involved in the Mankind Project where we were able to, you know, very directly have experiences of both wounding and healing that we could surface and then get the healing and support. So those three elements, I think recognizing the wound, making the connections between, you know, our present, you know, problems and taking responsibility for them and where they their core in our early experiences getting support you know in some kind of a men's support system and having safe places where we can you know express our emotional issues in a place that's safe and can be healed i'd say those were the key things and there were many more i think uh you know as you, you know, as you know from reading the book there were you know, other supports, other things that help, but those were the core ones that I think were probably most critical. Cool, cool. I, I'm stunned at the the 40 years in this in the same group. That that that's amazing. Yeah, so it uh, is. It is. I feel all, all those very blessed. <laughs> yeah. Is there any um, level of of repercussion from the father wound that that can't be healed? Um, I've you know I'm both a, a psychotherapist that has been working with. Some of the most extreme trauma i've worked with people who've you know been in prison who've uh, murdered people who you know who are, are just seen as bad and evil and what i've come to see is there really are no bad evil people there are very extremely wounded people and some of them the wounds are so extreme they need to be separated out from the culture and to protect them and others from their woundedness and their acting out. But I've found there is no level of woundedness that can't be healed. And I've worked again, as I said, in, in therapy and in groups and in healing environments with people that many had written off as too late for them. You know, they, 
we just have to push them aside, lock them up, throw away the key. And what I've found is that it's never too late to heal. You know, some people say, well, yeah, maybe if I'd have gotten help earlier, I could have gotten some positive, but it's too late. So what I can tell people, it's never too late to heal. And there's nothing that you have done that can't be repaired. And there's nothing that, you know, has been done to you that is permanently, you know, ingrained in you such that it, it is unable to be healed. And we can all get that level of healing that we can get at a particular time in our life. So that's, that's why I feel very hopeful and why, you know, I do this work and why I, you know, have groups and online groups and healing groups and I help start groups and I work with people from all over the world because, you know, I, I'm so passionate about the need and what we can accomplish with a healing environment and I know how to do it. I've developed the skills over these many years that, you know, I know what to do. You know, we just have to engage and I know how to guide you. So I'm excited to be able to offer that to people. Yeah, I guess your excitement and passion comes across really in, in any time I've ever seen you in, in, in your words and, and everything. So uh, so we've got to get you into the Oval Office and perhaps leave the audio book behind because I think that's the only way the president would, would be able to uh, partake in, in a book these days. But you know, aside from the helping and healing aspects of the book and the memoir aspect, that there's also a lot of research in it as well. And uh, you know, there are a couple numbers that, that really struck me and I just, I just wanna, I wanna call them out because sure. the first one really struck you as, as reading the book when you first heard this, but it's about the, the genetic difference between men and women and that the, the, the percent of the genome uh, is the same. Men and women are as identical as humans and chimpanzees are. Yeah, this is, this is actually new research. I mean, I've been studying you know, differences and similarities between men and women for years. You know, and there's been lots of debate about, uh, you know, how much is genetic, how much is, you know, our, our learned experience. And what we now know is they're, they're interrelated. The, the genes learn as well. Genes expression changes with environmental learning. So there really isn't anything that's hardwired that can't be changed. And what they found, and this is at uh, the MIT, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology Labs, was they had done genetic research for years that said humans, you know, are 99.9% the same, whether you're looking at people from the US, Africa, anywhere in the world, humans are basically alike as humans. And that was kind of the, the, the accepted genetic knowledge of the time. But over the last uh, really five to 10 years at, at NIT, they actually were able to look at the gene expressions, you know, which is now fairly new that we can do. And what they found was that this idea that we were 99.9% .9 the same, uh, David Page was a researcher, and he said, this is only true if you compare two men, any two men in the world are 99.9% .9 the same. If you compare two women, they're 99.9% .9 genetically the same. But if you compare a man and a woman, they're only 98.5% the same. Well, that doesn't seem like a big difference, but 
that 1.5% difference is the same difference between humans and chimpanzees. So think about that for a minute. So genetically, I'm as similar to my wife genetically as I am to a male chimpanzee. Hmm. So what that says to me is, back to Robert Bly, remember the sound that male cells sing? Every one of our cells in our body has uh, either an XY chromosome if we're male or an XX chromosome if we're female. And the, the XY chromosome that, that vibrates at a different frequency than the XX, every one of our cells has a different sound, a different frequency. And what Dr. Page tells us is that these just aren't theoretical differences. These affect our propensity towards disease. It affects treatments for disease. It, it, it affects what medications and how they affect males and females differently. For instance, many people take a sleeping pill to go to bed. There's a popular sleep drug called Ambien that's been on the market for 20 years. Very, very well known, very, very well accepted, and assumed to be equally acceptable and in equal dosage, the same for males and females. So if you you know, up until recently, if you went to a doctor, they prescribed a sleeping pill, they gave you Ambien, whatever the dosage would be, they would say, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, because, you know, we're basically 99.9% the same. But what they found when they actually looked at the effect of Ambien on males versus females, they found that women who took the same dose as Ambien as men had 40% more of the drug in their system the next morning. So picture this. So you've had a good night's sleep. You're taking your kids to school the next day in the car. And as a woman, you are still under the influence of a sleep medication. So you're driving sleepy. And a male may be waking up because he didn't get enough sleep because the dose that was appropriate for a woman and maybe too much for a woman, he didn't get enough of. So these things, when they asked Dr. Page, well, do we have to go back and look at all the research that we have on medications and such to make them gender specific rather than gender neutral? And he said, yes, our whole understanding of health and disease needs to be reevaluated in the light of these gender-specific findings. Wow. So is that actually happening, or is it still being debated? Well, it's happening on a small scale. Ambien, as a specific drug, now has different doses for males and females. But they said, you know, the FDA, to do that with all the medications that are out there, they said it would take too long, it would be too, you know, too cost prohibitive. So it really leaves it to each person to be able to go, wait a minute, doc, you know, I'm a man, I might need something different, or you have to watch yourself. Am I taking too much of a drug or too little of a drug? Or all the ways in which our, you know, our unique cells want to sing its own tune, we have to, in a sense, find our own symphonic chorus, our own, you have to become the, 
the maestros of our own symphonies so that we can take control and hopefully, you know, things like the Good Men Project, we can talk about these things, we can dialogue, we can talk about the implications of them. Shows like yours can, you know, get us where we can be engaging with each other so we can find out all the implications of health and healing that we now know that need to be shared with the larger world and the larger audiences that we have. That's amazing that that we're, I mean, it's, it's also hopeful too that, that we keep discovering things about us. Right? Yeah. So, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, you know, there's getting back into the book and into your story. There, there was, um, at one point you discovered your father's journals. Yes. And, the, and there was one passage, uh, something that he wrote. Um, so in the, in the 1940s and, and I just, I want, I want to share it cause it, it really struck a chord to me and sounded like it could have been written by, any sort of men's right activists today or anything, but, but your dad wrote of the struggle trying to make a living, right. feeling a furious hate inside, the hot breath of necessity blaring down our necks, the constant finger about to stick itself in our noses and telling us time's up. So this, this loathing, so all, it kind of like, what men think is something that's very like now and we're, yeah. you know, we're, we're bursting out of the man box, but the, the box has always been there and, and men have been frustrated inside that box all, all along. Well, the good news is it hasn't always been there. You know, when you look at, uh, you know, indigenous cultures throughout the world, uh, which is our original way in which we live tribally uh, and men and women did their lives just like we do. And really we lived in tribal societies probably for 99% of human history. So it's been relatively recently, you know, in, uh, I'm kind of an anthropologist and student of, you know, our historical shifts. And, you know, what really happened about 6,000 years ago, it's a long time, but in, you know, the 2 million years of our human heritage, 6,000 years is really not that long, when we really got disconnected from the earth, when we really saw the earth as something to be used and something, you know, that was there for humans rather than humans being part of the natural environment. We saw ourselves as the, the ones that would be the, the, the keepers of the earth and the ones that would bend it to our will. When you think about that kind of oppressive relationship to the earth, it also then was the way we began to treat ourselves. When we treat the earth this way, we treat ourselves with oppression. Uh, you know, the, the philosopher Martin Buber said we move from an I-thou relationship to an I-it relationship. And we start to treat ourselves as little its. And when we do that, we start treating other people like that. And that then leads to an economic system, you know, that's based on winner take all. We, you know, should try to get as much as we can. It's the same kind of thing that creates a box for men that have to be a certain way and a different kind of box for women. And the good news is it hasn't always been that way. It's been around for quite a long time. And, you know, things like the Good Men Project and what you're doing, what we're doing, is saying, you know, it actually is something that we have created as part of a cultural economic system and a way of relating to the earth. And it's very clear to most people that that way of relating to the earth is unsustainable. 
we're living in a you know in a culture that's basically destroying the life support system of the earth that's heating it up you might think we we have a temperature problem you know which in in any kind of health system is an indicator of disease that we have the fever we're sick and if we don't you know respond to the symptom and say we need to fix the cause of what's out of balance you know we will become one of the extinct species that used to be around and that are no longer or we can wake up from the dream that we've had that's this raving of somebody who's been in a coma in some ways for a long time and go you know we need to get back to our health back to ourselves back to an intimate relationship with each other back to fathers and children being involved back to healing the father wound which is my pet process back to healing the depression and the sadness and the disconnection that's so prevalent in the world but we're ready to change you know the the good side of the crisis is the opportunity to change we are on the brink of a transformation that i think is likely to bring about a reformation a reflowering a reconnection to the earth to each other to our male heart and soul that i think is going to change the way everything is going on on the world and we are the vanguard of that everybody that's part of this movement knows in some deep way we are the people we've been waiting for <laughs> you know there's no guru that's going to come and save us it's us all together that can do this awesome awesome that that is a uh... Yeah, I uh, as I was reading the book, I I thought at times, you know, I I wonder if Jed wishes this wounding had never happened. But you're you're so passionate and optimistic. I I I'm I'm guessing the answer is no. Like you're you're glad for the entire journey. Well, I think we all have the journey. That's there's no getting around it. We've all experienced trauma and pain and healing. It's a question of what do you do with the knowledge. It's do you wake up to the reality that we've been blaming others, we've been angry at others, and we need to take responsibility. Again, that's part of the process. It's me, it is you, you're not to blame, I've got to own it. Secondly, I have to join with other like-minded people. I have to make the connections between the wounding of the past and the wounding that I'm experiencing in the present. You know, and I have to recognize that together we can change things you know we can make it different and so the wounding and we see this in so many parts of our lives is the opening to the transformation you know there's a you know leonard cohen you know there's a a crack in everything that's how the light gets in remember that line yeah. and i think we all sense that things are kind of cracked things are breaking apart and we can be afraid of that breaking. My God, everything's falling apart. Or we can go, you know, there's a crack in the old system that's breaking apart and there's a new emerging way of life that we're all a part of. We are the seeds that are growing into, I think, a transformative world that's the world we all know we need and want and are expecting. And the good news is we can have it. Beautiful. Uh, 
Jed, I, I just uh, find you to be a, a marvelous man, a, a, an amazing human being. Um, what, what's the best way for people to connect with you, to keep in touch with you? Well, uh, other than reaching out in the screen and waving <laughs> at me, uh, my, my website is kind of my, my home base. Uh, and it's got a, a, a name that expresses what I'm about. It's called Men Alive. M-E-N-A-L-I-V-E dot com. So if you come to Men Alive, uh, you can get information about the new books, about my actually 15 books, the, these new books coming out, the, 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 the memoir and the playbook. This is 14 and 15. You can learn about all my other books. You can find out about my articles. You can you know, join the class that I'm going to be getting started for men and women that really want to go deeper and tackle the roots of our woundedness, the roots of a lot of the anger that we feel in our relationships to ourselves and each other. And, you know, I look forward to, to hearing people, you know, drop me a note, say, hey, heard you on the show, want to, you know, want to say hello, uh, want to ask a question. Yeah, I'm a real person. Some people go, oh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think you can tell is you why yeah, I'm a real guy and I actually read all my mail and I live in a little town called Willits, California, and uh, you know, I've got in addition to my five grown children and seventeen grandchildren, uh, you know, I've got a wonderful world here that I look forward to sharing with you and uh, you know, come visit me if not here in Willits, at least uh, on my website at mentalive.com. Awesome. Awesome. I encourage everyone to check out the site and um, we'll have links to the site. We'll have links to the books. We'll have links to your art articles on the Good Men Project on realmenfeel.org. And in the book, My Distant Dad, Healing the Family Father Wound is available now as, e as an ebook already. And the, the physical versions and the audiobook will be available in September. Right. And, and the, the playbook as well as at a September release. Um, we're, we're getting that out. Maybe that will be sooner if you come to our, my website uh, or tune in to Connection Victory. Uh, you'll be able to get the, the latest information about when things are coming out. But they all are coming. The, the ebook is right now. You can you know, get that on Amazon or through Connection Victory. And uh, you will, I know, find the story interesting, engaging, and moving. And I want to hear from you. I want to talk to you. I want to, you know, engage you in joining, you know, this movement for healing that we all are a part of and that you all are, are watching or a part of. And I think you feel that, you know, something's going on. You may not quite understand what it is, but you are a part of it, I promise you. And we together are going to change the world. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, thank you. For, I'm, I'm so thrilled. We, we finally were able to connect and, and got you on Real Men Feel because um, you, you are definitely a real man and you definitely feel. And, and uh, I, I just I love it. And I got to read an advanced copy of the book. And yeah, it, it blew me away. It is not what I expected. Um, deep, deep resonance with, with so much of it. So I thank you for being willing to share your story. Uh, thank you for all your years of, of work on, on yourself and on all of us. Right. Awesome. So thank you, Jed. And thanks for everyone listening. Um,
My Distant Dad, Healing the Family Father Wound is published by Lasting Impact Press, which is an imprint of Connection Victory Publishing Company. And I want to give another shout out to the whole team at Connection Victory Publishing for connecting me and Jed so this conversation could happen. And Real Men Feel is brought to you by The Good Men Project. Visit goodmenproject.com for more conversations that no one else is having. So until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Until next week, visit realmenfeel.org or the Real Men Feel Facebook group and share what you thought of this episode. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Show us some love by visiting realmenfeel.org slash swag or digitaltipjar.com slash realmenfeel. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com and Apio Hunter at apiohunter.com.